Hey there, I'm Brad Feld, co-host of the Give First podcast, along with David Cohen. In this podcast, we talk about mentors and entrepreneurs in the startup world and discuss the concept of Give First, which means being willing to help other people without an expectation of return. It's not altruism. You do expect to get something back, but you just don't know when, from whom, and what consideration over what time period. Stay tuned for some great stories from some outstanding entrepreneurs about how making Give First makes great entrepreneurship possible. And now, before we really get started, the legal stuff, spoken really quickly. The following discussion is expression of personal opinion does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversation is for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal, business, investment, or tax advice, and it's not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. This is not in tiny little print at the bottom of the advertisement on your TV set, because it's a podcast. Hey there, folks listening to the Give First podcast. This is Brad Feld, one of your co-hosts. Today, I'm with a longtime friend, Chris Schroeder. And Chris has been an awesome uh, entrepreneur, executive, mentor, investor, uh, all kinds of things all around the world. So I think today is going to be sort of a fascinating trip to lots of places that people don't know as much about as uh, maybe you know certain places. Uh, Chris, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here, Brad. Thanks so much. Uh, well, as we get started, maybe talk some about uh, your origin story. Uh, how did you get to uh, where Chris Schroeder is today? It's a, a long story in many ways, but the short version of it is that I began uh, my journey in the technology and running companies and the global impact we're about to talk to actually from the entrepreneur's lens. Uh, I actually was an intrapreneur first in uh, digital tech, working for the Washington Post company and all their digital assets, and I broke off and did my own digital tech company in online health and wellness. Um, and it was from the lens of doing and building these companies that first I began to outsource technology everywhere in the world. But unlike a lot of people who did that from America, I actually went and visited a lot of people around the world. So I had a very early lens to outstanding talent everywhere, which we now take for granted, but also outstanding rise of entrepreneurship everywhere, which I think we don't know as much about. Let's talk about some of your early mentors you know, maybe from that time, you know, at the post when you were doing post digital, or even as you started to uh, sort of transition into the next phases, uh, can can you remember some folks that really had an impact on you early on? I've had uh, been blessed with many um, mentors over the years, and I've taken with them many attributes that I hope I bring to my mentorship when I deal with entrepreneurs today. There's a man whose name is not well known, uh, but was a very large in the investment community in New York and very active now in the, in the Jewish and Jewish American community named Harold Tanner. Uh, and he was sort of a, uh, an unusual bastion of integrity and honesty and thoughtfulness uh, and discipline that had a huge impact on my life before I got involved in tech entrepreneurship. Um, and so that um, carried many lessons from him and sort of people like that. In the tech world uh, itself, you know, it's interesting. You like to think of mentors of people who are a lot older than you. And I now have found in the last 10 or 15 years that often I get mentored by people around my age or sometimes even younger who have shared experiences that have been very powerful to me. And, um, you know, I look at people like Mark Andreessen and uh, Ben Horowitz and Reid Hoffman and other friends of yours and mine that uh, really have been mentors. They're not just advisors or friends, but they really help me think through things to be a more constructive and better uh, leader and a better thinker about what's happening in the world. I think our initial uh, intro, I'm not exactly sure where it came from. I kind of have in my head that it came from uh, Ben Kaznoka indirectly 
through Reed Hoffman. Yep. Um, but it was around a book you wrote a number of years ago called uh, Startup Rising. Yeah. And I love I love subtitles because I think subtitles are so important when, you know, the book titles are catchy, but the subtitles are the essence of what the book's about if they're written well. And the subtitle of Startup Rising is uh, The Entrepreneurial Revolution Remaking the Middle East. That's right. W- what inspired you to write that book? So as I alluded to before, I really had an early lens from an operator's lens that something was happening different in the globe. And I, to this day, I get asked all the time, as I know you get asked all the time, what's the most exciting technology revolution today? And I can give a good talk on artificial intelligence and blockchain and genomics and many things that I touch in my worlds. But I think one of the least understood is not the technology itself, but it's the near global access to it. And in that experience I shared with you before, where I was outsourcing technology and got on the ground and watched it, I began to ask a real central question that I think everyone should ask, from policymakers to Silicon Valley to us as citizens, which is what happens in a world where two-thirds, 70%, 80% are walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket? How does that change everything? Um, And it does, in my view, uh, in a very bottom-up way. And my first deep dive into that came uh, when I joined a group through the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, which is a big global group of CEOs, and about... Uh, 15 American CEOs and 15 Arab CEOs got together uh, several years after September 11th, really with no other agenda than to begin to uh, think about a different narrative than the doom and disaster we tended to see on the news. Two of them were leaders in the tech ecosystem in the Arab world. And we all know about Israel, of course, as being an astounding tech ecosystem. But frankly, even I, who followed this stuff and had my own uh, visions traveling around the world, I couldn't get it through my mind that Mubarak's Egypt was kicking out world-class software engineers or that it really mattered compared to the bigger issues overall. And in 2010, about a month after that young man set himself on fire in Tunisia uh, that set off the Arab uprisings, they had the first major gathering of startups in the Arab world. Uh, and I went there kind of kicking and screaming. They gave me a keynote you know, speech and, and whatever, and I, it wasn't really that relevant directly to my work. Within two hours of being there, I knew my life had changed completely because it was 3,500 young people who didn't care about a lot of the political machinations. They just wanted to use technology to solve problems in their backyard and beyond. There's another 3,500 people waiting list to get in. Uh, and it's just such a mind blow to me. And the caliber was so great. I realized that, one, this is not only a story about the Middle East. This was now where the 21st century was going. And secondly, for all my pride and my openness to things, I realized I was stuck in my own narrative bias. I really missed this entirely. And so it became almost a mission personally as an executive and as a human being and as a citizen uh, to dig deeply into it. Because I knew from the beginning what I was seeing in the Middle East was going to be a a foundation for what was happening everywhere. So when I read the book, I was struck not just by the the power of a number of the stories, but uh, some of the examples that you had that came from uh, countries that uh, are Countries that the U.S., especially today in today's political environment, um, are forbidden from doing business with, yeah. right? and are, are, you know, whether it's OFAC or something else, like it's this this challenge to actually engage. And so, maybe tell a story from one of those those uh, countries, or you know, a company in one of those countries, entrepreneurs there, but also sort of how you saw the power of entrepreneurship amongst that next generation of people that you're interacting with. So two quick stories, one that illustrates the broader point of what happens when everyone has access to technology and one in uh, an even more forbidden uh, country. I remember meeting four young women who had just graduated high school 
and they were they loved technology. They just loved it, and they you know kind of autodidact, but they did everything they can. And they had invented an ability to create solar charging um, so that they could power lanterns, electrical battery-operated lanterns in and around their community nearby. Now, the community nearby was fundamentally a tent community. It wasn't refugees, but it was a tent community that uh, used kerosene lamps. And there were fires all the time, and there were health issues. So these women literally built uh, these receiver, effectively uh, discs, dishes, to uh, build charging stations using the sun in their areas. And they were in Yemen. And they happened to win a major startup competition. But I remember them showing up at a startup competition at 18 years old, dressed intentionally in great Yemeni attire because they were so proud. I could actually hear them before I could see them because they had these bells on them and they were kind of ringing as they came into the room. And I asked them, like, how did you learn all this and how did you do that? And they didn't skip a beat. They said, oh, we have access to YouTube, of course. And if you Google around Google generally and YouTube in particular, you found out how to make this stuff. And that's what we did. Well, the first ones we made were absurd. But finally, we got it right. And we're now charging devices, right? And so this is Yemen. And this was women who simply had access to Google and YouTube and were able to create something quite relevant to them. In a, in a broader sense, I went to Iran twice um, and... Um, you know, the caliber of engineers there and the universities there are, are world class and they're graduating hundreds of thousands of engineers every year. Half of them, by the way, are women. They have been locked out in many ways of kind of the global tech revolution, except that everyone has VPN. So while technically Facebook and stuff like that was illegal at the time, um, everyone got had access to it. In fact, you were not allowed to have iPhones, uh, but in a country of, you know, 80, 90 million people, I think it was uh, six, seven million iPhones that they would get through Istanbul or, or however. And, the, you know, there was amazing companies there across the spectrum of solutions, but Digicala was effectively the Amazon or e-commerce solution for Iran. Iranians are highly sophisticated. They love to buy things. They like convenience. And that company that was, I don't know, probably worth $100 million when I was last there in um, uh, 2015, I was just told a couple of weeks ago, received funding, obviously not from America, but received it of, un, of funding somewhere between one and two billion dollars. So it's amazing with this unleashes and it, it leads to your broader question, which you and I actually talked about on a podcast for Andreessen Harwitz not long ago, which is, you know, entrepreneurship is a global language. You put a woman and a man in the same room from anywhere in the world and talk to them about what it is in their teeth they want to solve. It is almost the same conversation, and it is a lingua franca, I think, everywhere in the world. And secondly, I think people really want to solve problems on the terms of their regions, right? Ten years ago, if uh, people had access to smart devices, if Facebook or Twitter or Instagram showed up, they tended to kind of win the market by the act of showing up. Now, in a lot of these kinds of markets you're alluding to, technology is accessible, the talent is good. Folks are like, why do I have to take an American solution? I can build a solution that's much more relevant to me. Sometimes they'll get platformed out, but other times they won't. And uh, that's making for a very interesting dynamic right now. When you reflect on not just the, the, the stories in the book, but then the, the journeys and experiences back to that region over the years, um, when you think about entrepreneurship as a global language, uh, what do you think can be done around entrepreneurship, especially against the backdrop of, of the tension at a geopolitical level, uh, to try to help people be more effective working with each other across borders, especially when those borders are ones where there's you know huge conflict, again, geopolitically? I would have told you, if we had this conversation three years ago, that 
the beauty and the intrigue of entrepreneurship is that it's a, what I alluded to before, a bottom-up phenomenon. What I mean by that is, you know, for, for many decades, a lot of things in life, whether they were government and business, were very top-down. Big institutions sort of determined what was going to happen uh, in the given society or a given ecosystem in that area. Well, now all of a sudden you have 70% of humanity with a smart device. That means you have access to each other. You have access to great ideas. You can use products and services from anywhere. You can see what people who look like you uh, do something and it works. That means you can do it and it works. Sort of this flywheel of empowerment. And so I would have told you three years ago, that it's not that the top down doesn't matter because it does a lot. But I would have told you that the answer to your question was fundamentally greater connective tissue across uh, people who are just doing it, right? It's just you don't have to do anything. There's no policy. Just complete, uh, con continue to unleash the engage in, connect in connectedness. Whatever's happening at the geopolitical level, a lot of great stuff is going to keep coming bottom up. I still feel pretty strongly that way, but I must tell you, I just came back from uh, three weeks in China. Uh, which is a whole other conversation and a mind blow of, of innovation and technology and entrepreneurship uh, for sure. Not only there, but the Chinese now looking in other particularly emerging markets. But I've begun to wonder if there's a balkanization we're in the early days of in technology and that you can have kind of a Western technology sector and ecosystem and maybe a China slash Asia slash emerging market one and Iran's got its own and um, you know, the, the, this stuff is bad, I think. I think it's just missing opportunity to have the greatest engagement across multiple ecosystems and perspectives and ideas and uh, innovation anywhere. Um, and so I'm still very, very hopeful. I still think my answer is the same, uh, but I'm beginning to wonder a little bit about some of the machinations we appear to be sleepwalking towards. Uh, you just spent three weeks in China. Give us a, give us an example of something truly remarkable that you saw that just, as you said, mind-blowing kind of thing. The truth is, Brad, I'm, I'm really still processing it in many ways. This trip was as eye-opening to me for very different reasons than that first trip to the digital tech community of the Middle East before. And I did plenty of history and cultural stuff. I'd read 20 books in preparation for this trip. I, I had been before. I'd seen many things about it. There, there are things that we read about and understand about that are, are completely familiar, but when you see them, they blow you away. Like everybody knows China is big, right? We all know that. But when you're on the ground, you take a fast train from Beijing to Shanghai, and you pass through four cities, only one of which I'd heard of before, Nanjing. The other three cities I've never heard of, and they appear out of nowhere. And every one of those cities is like 15 million people. It, it's, it just kind of dr brings home the kind of size and meeting with a lot of the entrepreneurs and companies I met with, the tenacity and work ethic that also we read about when you see it is there. But I think the real surprising thing to me that I'm processing is I met with, I think, almost 70 people in the three-week period, mostly in tech-related stuff. And America, I don't think, came up a single time, not once. And I don't think they were being diplomatic. I think when I brought up things about America or even, you know, companies and tech stuff in Silicon Valley, they would talk about it, but we're kind of disinterested and we're just hyperly focused on the scale, speed, and competitiveness that they face not only within their market, but as they begin themselves to look at entrepreneurship in the other markets that uh, we've talked about, which include the Middle East, absolutely Southeast Asia, but they're also looking at Latin America very carefully. And what was really an epiphany to me was I got through Endeavor Global, which is a very important nonprofit group helping entrepreneurs around the world. Just by total coincidence, um, there was about 15 or so entrepreneurs from Endeavor Global. They were from Latin America, uh, Africa, and Southeast Asia, all in fintech. 
And I watched their engagement with the Chinese, and I realized they're having the same conversation. I talked about a lingua franca before, but actually some of it is much more specified. And what I have found in all my travels is that rising market entrepreneurs have very unique products, problems, and uh, opportunities that they're navigating on the ground with last mile logistics or people have never used credit cards before. It's the first time people have ever had a smartphone before that are incredibly not only shared among them, but actually the Chinese folks have just come through it themselves. So the conversation they have, the questions they have are in a way much more relevant in that lingua franca. And I remember a bunch of the entrepreneurs said to me afterwards said, wow, you know, I think the Chinese tech community understands us better than the American community does. And that's really stuck with me. Wow, it's fascinating. It is. <clears throat> what are you going to do uh, on the heels of the China trip uh, as you process the information? So it was never an intent uh, to start doing business in China. I, I think it's just too difficult. And quite bluntly, Brad, they don't they don't really need me. I mean, the, the ecosystem has moved off and it's doing stuff which in many respects is toe-to-toe with America. And I am American and I care a lot about the entrepreneurs here. But to the degree that I'm in these other markets, as I said, I'm kind of thinking about who's coming in and who's having influence in these markets in a very co-authored way. I remember one entrepreneur in Indonesia, an amazing woman in a healthcare uh, gig said to me, she said, we love America, but we don't understand why you're not here. Like we just don't see you much at all. And then secondly, when we do see you, you tend to want to make us into Silicon Valley companies. Like you're like, you know, you should do it this way and that way. And this is what works. And you don't really understand our local sensitivities as much. And this doesn't happen as much anymore, but there was a period where literally Silicon Valley would say, uh, if you really want to succeed, you've got to move here, like keep your operations at home. But if you really want to be great, you got to be in the valley. That doesn't happen as much, but it still reflects the mindset. But anyway, she said to me, she said, you know, when we meet with the Chinese, like we're cautious too. Like we know these are big guys. We know they're coming. Like we're not that sold on everything. But I'll tell you this. I've never met a Chinese investor or a Chinese company that wants to make us into one. Like they expect us to be great Indonesian entrepreneurs and Indonesian um uh, terms. And that has stuck with me. So as I continue both bridging what I'm seeing in America with the global uh, tech in- infrastructure and tech ecosystems, uh, I'm thinking a lot about the respect of that coherence, that respect for that uniqueness that's out there. And realize that any engagement in the world today is no longer about big American companies trying to crash a big market, no more, longer about American companies trying to outsource cheaply. It's really about co-authorship. It's really about, do I understand what you bring to the table? Do I understand that we all have great technology now? Do I understand we all have great engineers now? I understand that I bring something unique to the table. What can we do that's really a co-authorship? And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about how that can be best applied. I think that's pretty cool. David Cohen and I uh, were recently involved in helping start an Endeavor chapter in Colorado. I remember. And... uh, 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 Linda, the CEO of Endeavor, was on the board of Zayo, another yeah. company here in Boulder that yeah. uh, Dan Caruso runs, yeah. and he really was the catalyst for for getting Endeavor here. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people probably in the system don't know that much about Endeavor, and it's actually quite useful reminder to me to get Linda on uh, on this podcast because I think she's a phenomenal example of an entrepreneur who has been working hard uh, to provide lots of uh, uh, resource and infrastructure yes, uh, globally yeah. uh, around it. When you think about uh, your engagement with uh, the group that was there, that was uh, Endeavor-based, what was what was your reaction to the intersection between, for example, you, a bunch of Endeavor, you know, entrepreneurs who are typically 
scaled companies, larger businesses that are growing very quickly, um, you know, from, uh, uh, it sounds like it's from Latin America. And again, this sort of Chinese cultural dynamic uh, of entrepreneurship that's somewhat disconnected, sounds like, from the U.S. at this point. Did, did anything jump out at you as sort of the collision of those different cultures? I think um, the thing that has surprised me, even before I went to China, but it's going, because again, I, my journey began quite deeply in the Middle East, but I spent a lot of time now in Southeast Asia and Latin America and a little bit of Africa, which again was rep that group. The Endeavor group was not just Latin America, but also others. And what I did know going into this is this sense that while I, I, I still believe there's a shared entrepreneurial language globally, there's a very unique accent to emerging market entrepreneurs. And I knew that, right? I knew that I've built, like I've looked at um, places like Last Mile Logistics, I've looked at property tech, I've looked at um, different kinds of marketplaces, I've looked at different healthcare companies. And I have known that there's a very legitimate and helpful pattern recognition if you see an entrepreneur trying to make one of these things happen in Cairo or Jakarta or Sao Paulo. There's, you know, obviously language is different, culture is different, history is different, but 80% of it is the same conversation. To see that manifest so powerfully in uh, this China and to see it all in one room and to see that connective tissue and to listen to them saying, we do love you, we would like to use you, we do want your money, we do want to engage with you, we like the American market, but you don't understand us the same way. Um, that is a real substantial point for me as I think about this. Because look, at the end of the day, I don't care if you live in another place for 20 years, you never will fully understand the nuance of the ground. If I've learned anything in my, my years and years of travel, and people sometimes refer to me as a Middle East expert or whatever, it's, it's absurd. Like you never can be an expert, not even the time zone. It. The only thing that I know I've achieved is I ask better questions now than I did five years ago, but that's all I do. So you really have got to work with people on the ground, the right partners on the, the ground, and really think of it as co-authorship. Um, and I think that is, that's going to be pretty powerful for anyone who's willing to do it and step up and do it and not think in the kind of way that I believe American businesses thought quite often or too often in the last 10 years or 50 years, particularly in technology. I, I love the line that the one thing you can get better at is asking questions. It's, it's one of the things that really appeals to my relationship with you. And there was a moment in uh, my own experience with you that really stuck out, which was, uh, we were trying to get together and uh, I was in a phase uh, which I regularly go through these days where I didn't feel like traveling. Yeah. Uh, and so I was hard to pin down because, uh, you know, I travel a little bit, but usually when I travel, it was it was a very constrained kind of thing. And at some point you said, uh, I don't know what, what went through your head, but you kind of said, fuck it, I'm just going to go to Boulder and meet with this guy. And uh, I got I got a note from you that said, "Hey, I'm coming out to Boulder. Just name a date and uh, and let's have dinner." And I remember uh, uh, the dinner that the one that sticks in my mind is the one that we had at Wild Standard uh, on Pearl Street. And yeah. you know, I I kind of neither of us certainly I didn't show up uh, at the dinner with any uh, preconceived notion of where the conversation would go. And you know, three or four hours later, when we finished, um, uh, not only did I feel energized by the conversation, but um, I, I would actually say that I had a better sense of how to sit with somebody that you know, but not that well, and, and just learn and explore. And so maybe comment a little bit about how you've woven that into your life, because I think from my perspective, it's one of your gifts. Well, thank you for saying that. And I certainly had the same feeling uh, in all the times we've gone together or just compared notes on the world. Um, I don't know if I have an answer that's concrete to it because I'm sort of guess I am what I am. 
And I've always wanted to really pause and listen. We, we live in an era, uh, and I'm a big fan of technology and its ramifications in many ways, and I'm a much better informed person in many ways because of it. But we also live in an era where we don't pause, and we really want to kind of get our argument out, often in the shortest possible soundbite, which I think is a compounding, complicated, complicating issue where we are today. And I, it's never been my way. I've really wanted not to size up the other woman or man I'm talking to, but to really hear them on their terms. And I have found that um, not only do I learn a lot about people when I really sort of get clarity in what they're saying and why they're saying it and dig into, you know, why they care about what they care of. Or what I, lo- I just love when I'm with somebody and they're, you can just tell they're excited by something in their teeth. Like they could be talking about basket weaving and I'll spend two hours wanting to understand how that all came about, if in fact that's where they come from. But what I hope is, and I think this is true, um, is that they learn almost as much, if not more, about me by the fact that I am asking them questions and the kinds of questions that I ask. Because some people have said to me, I'm reticent, like you do all the question answering. I, I will tell you, Brad, very often people don't ask questions. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's you know, that people don't. But some of it may be true. I mean, some of it might be that I am a little bit reticent. It's not that I'm trying to hold back, but I, it's that I think I know myself pretty well and I'm much more interested in the other person. But I do believe quite profoundly that in that exchange, the act of asking questions and the f- questions that are asked are deeply revealing about the person that you're with. Well, in your reticence, you've been very generous to let me ask you a bunch of questions. Yes, sir. Thank um, you for this. <laughs> I'm going to end you with, or uh, end this episode with uh, one of our favorite things, which uh, which we stole from Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, which is a quick rapid fire round. So I'm going to ask you a handful of questions, and I just want 30 to 60 second answers. Yes, okay? sir. Mm-hmm. All right. Question one, and these are what you know. Question and answer and why. Uh, first question is favorite city in the world. My favorite city in the world is where I come from, which is New York City, and I still feel like a New Yorker. But it's a close tie because my children were raised in Washington, and so I can't disaggregate that either. I, I see an East Coast uh, East Coast experience in your soul. Yeah. Um, uh, this one is actually a two-part question. Uh, it's a single question, but I want actually two answers. The question is, uh, what's a great book that you've read recently? And what I'd like is one of the 20 books that you read before you went to China, if somebody grabbed one and read one, what would it be? And then totally separate from the China trip, what's a great book that you've read recently? So this was inspired by a very good friend of mine. So I I read a lot, right? Every year I read at least 50 or 60 books. But it was I read a friend of mine uh, once last year, end of last year, noted that he figured out how to read 100. And so I committed to do that. And like when I'm on airplanes now, I commit to my reading. And when I'm, you know, I do less social media, I just make the choices to make a priority. It's been one of the most enriching years. I actually just passed my 100th book. Uh, In China, I read 20. Now I've probably read 30 books this year alone beyond stuff by that. It's so hard to pick because there's been so much amazing stuff. Um, I love Evan Osnes's uh, Age of Ambition as kind of a kind of current events and where we are today. But there's actually a book by a very famous novelist there. Enough, I'm going to lose his name, but it's called China in Ten Words, and he literally takes one word and then describes how it reflects China. Uh, and I found it very deep and very moving and very beautifully written, obviously in translation. Uh, but that that would be uh, those would be two of many that were outstanding. And that if you had told me to really pick an unusual one, that pseudo novel but also memoir and this way of doing it was it. Um, ben Horowitz is out. I'm, I'm not a huge business book fan, 
but the business books that I do read have changed my life. Your books obviously have been my greatest tutorial in, in venture capital and, and, and life as your blog is. Uh, Ben's Hard Thing About Hard Things, I think, is really one of the definitive books for entrepreneurs. But he just wrote a book, just came out this week, in fact, of what you do is who you are. And it's an exploration about culture in your organization uh, through history. He talks about Genghis Khan. He talks about uh, the first slaver and most only successful slave rebellion in history that happened in Haiti and calls it together in an incredibly powerful way about how we are in life, how we are as a community, and very much how we think about culture and business. Uh, and I thought it was, I thought it was just wonderful. Awesome. Well, as an uh, also a voracious reader, uh, for anybody that's interested, China in 10 Words is by, and I'm have no confidence that I'll say the name right. Uh, Yu Hua. Hua, that's right. Y U H U A, and yeah. the translator's Alan Barr. And as of this moment, it's on my Kindle to be read. Awesome. Um, if uh, you were involved in one charity or could choose one charity to encourage people to get involved in, uh, what would it be and why? I've been blessed uh, to know many that are, again, very bottom up, right? They're not these large, top down organizations, but these more almost entrepreneurial ones. And I'm going to cheat, and there are two that I adore. Uh, both of them happen to be about the Middle East. Uh, one is the Karam Foundation, uh, which was founded by a woman in um, Chicago, but is uh, from Aleppo. And the, she has built these centers in Istanbul and on the border, the Syrian border in Turkey, that are both uh, educational opportunities, but they're community centers that are really taking families and youth and not just giving them hope for the future, but really empowering them to learn skills, to do things with technology, among other things, art and culture, to not only process what they've been through, but to prepare themselves for what uh, a new world is going to look like. And um, very entrepreneurial, and, and so the Karam Foundation is one. And similarly, our friend uh, Fadi Gandor, who's one of the great entrepreneurs of the Middle East, has now for 10 years had something called RUWAD, R-U-W-A-A-D, which are uh, community centers first started in Jordan, now in Egypt, now in Lebanon and elsewhere, which are really are of and for the communities, built by the communities. And they're really teaching themselves how to become great citizens, how to really learn exposure outside of the communities of poverty in the cities that they're in now and meet entrepreneurs, uh, get access to technology, have these amazing sessions where they uh, debate case studies of how we act in society. And I just love these groups that are kind of inspiring individuals to take control of their lives. There was a great line in my book, and it's one of my favorite quotes, that said that you know, these big top-down organizations, could be governments, could be NGOs, they're wonderfully often and certainly well-intended, so it's not a criticism. But these organizations think of people as problems to be solved. You people, poor people, will solve you. Bottom-up organizations think of people as assets to be unleashed. And that's what I think so much is happening in entrepreneurship and technology as well. But certainly those two groups are really about the, the bottom up unleashing themselves. You got some head nods for me on the second one. Mm -hmm. All right. Last question. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> well, I've eaten dinner with you. So that already counts. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's just so many, I'm a, such a passion for history and, and different formulations and everything else. There are, so many people that I would love to uh, meet, but if you literally said anyone dead or alive, what I'd love to do is I'd love to have a I'd love to have a triad dinner, and I'd love them I'd love Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha at that table, and I'd mm -hmm. like to ask them, you know, how have we screwed up so much in their names? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. 
Bye. Chris, uh, thank you for the time. Uh, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with, uh, with me and with everybody that listens to the Give First podcast. And most of all, I look forward to the next time we're in the same room sharing a meal together. And I'll make it so. Great to be with you, Brad. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or any person that you'd love to hear from on Give First. Please also leave us a rating and review and reach out to us at podcasts at techstars.com or you can reach me on Twitter at bfeld. See you next time. And don't forget to always give first. Give first.